looking back, I just see it as a very limited life. Like, I don't know that I would have got to know myself. I don't know that I really would have challenged myself that much. It kind of makes me sad to think of that possibility because of how much I've discovered I'm capable of through being forced to by starting a business. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Starting a business can be extremely emotionally difficult. Maybe something we don't talk about enough on this show is the personal challenges that you got to go through to do this stuff. I don't think it's any surprise that when you get into business, you often get into self-development and personal development. At the same time, they can be one and the same. A lot of times when you start a new business, you're going to be broke. You're going to not know where the next paycheck's coming from. You might be living with your family, your childhood bedroom, or living with a roommate or depending on a spouse or significant other to pay the bills on one income. And all of this can lead to a lot of stress. It can be all-consuming, disillusioning, and it can even lead to depression for some. This week's guest struggle with that and also confronting the transformation it just takes to become an entrepreneur. You have to think differently. His name is Christopher Sutton. And a few years ago, he wrote a blog post on his site, sonictruths.net, titled, Surely You Will Be Saved One Day. And I'd like to start this episode by reading a little bit from that blog post. And I quote, I wake up 60 minutes after my head hits the pillow. I can't live like this. Sleepless nights. Even when things are going well, the busy days and sustained focus on every aspect of my business meant even brief moments of waking during the night were immediately filled with business thoughts, planning and keeping track of the multitude of things I was juggling. Glad for so much activity towards my goal, but stressed by juggling it all. Overwhelmed by the all-consuming nature of trying to start a business, guilt at the other parts of my life neglected while I focus on this. I think most, if not all of us, have been there. So we decided to ask Christopher onto the show to talk about that moment in his life, but also how and why he found support at least partially in his entrepreneurial journey through this podcast, as well as the related community to this podcast called the DC or the Dynamite Circle. I think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs are going to connect with what Christopher has to say. So before we get into the interview, just a little bit of background about Christopher Sutton's business, which is called Easy Ear Training. One of its major features is a membership website called Musical You, which helps amateur musicians become more confident about expressing themselves through creating music, learning to sing, play by ear, and much more. So we kicked off by talking about some of those times that Christopher wrote so eloquently about. So going back a few years, I guess I had already been running my business for a couple of years. I think I had never anticipated how much personal development and self-awareness work was going to be required to start a business. <laughs> I think I probably underestimated the amount of work in general was required to start a business. But I think having gone through the traditional education route and started out on a fairly traditional career path, the tracks are kind of laid out in front of you. And all being well, you just kind of plod along through your life and things work out. But I think as soon as you veer off that path and you start to take responsibility for how your life's going to turn out in a more substantial way, 
that immediately puts quite a lot of pressure on you to figure out a lot of things about yourself. And I think when you have an early stage business, things are very up and down. And that just amplifies all of that kind of internal development and internal roller coaster of emotions because it's literally, you know, your salary every month that's fluctuating when your business does better or worse. I think I was finding myself having some success on the business side. And I was starting to have a decent handle on who I was and who I wanted to be. But things were still quite unstable. And I was still quite lonely in it all. And I think that just meant I would fairly regularly slump completely, by which I mean, I would have a week or maybe 10 days where I just felt zero enthusiasm for my business. And I'd kind of plod through the day to day work, but I'd be really plagued by these in a self-doubt thoughts of, you know, what am I doing with my life? Is this going anywhere? Am I making a stupid mistake by just not, you know, taking the nicely paid job that was a safe option? Through the process of trying to make the business a success, like this question sounds so horrible, but I feel like there's something there, which is, did you learn things about yourself? Did you discover things that, you know, you wouldn't have seen had you not been running a business? I think... I absolutely did in a big way and lots of small ways. So the big way is I genuinely don't know if I would be half the person I am today if I hadn't decided to start a business, because I can very clearly see in retrospect, you know, I had started on a nice engineering career path. I had a good job with a small startup. I could see various other job opportunities ahead of me. And I could have had a nice, easy, successful life down that route. And looking back, I just see it as a very limited life. I don't know that I would have got to know myself. I don't know that I really would have challenged myself that much. It kind of makes me sad to think of that possibility because of how much I've discovered I'm capable of through being forced to by starting a business. And then I think there are lots of small ways too. And, you know, for example, I've never thought of myself as much of a business minded person. I'm more on the techie side. I enjoy the product creation and that side of things. But when you're starting as a solo founder, you have to wear so many different hats. That kind of forced me to realize, well, actually, you know, I can get pretty good at marketing and I can learn to write sales copy and I can, you know, figure out the financial side of the business, which are all things I would have liked to think I was intellectually capable of. But it's quite another thing to actually push yourself and see, can you get the results in those areas and can you learn what you need to fast enough to make it work. The way you described yourself pre-business doesn't sound like the type of person that would start a business. What happened? I suppose, first off, I agree. I definitely wasn't the kind of person you would look at and (laughs) think, well, that's a natural businessman right there. So I was a geeky kid. I went off and did computer science at university, but music has always been my hobby, my passion. The idea of starting a business wasn't really in my mind. What was in my mind was, well, I'm good with computers. Silicon Valley seems to be a thing. Maybe I'll go work for a startup someday. And so I kind of had that idea that I might like to dabble in the startup world in the future. But I definitely didn't think I am someone who is going to start a business. So I got to the end of my degree, realized I didn't want to be a career programmer. I did a master's in digital music processing, which kind of combined my love of music with my technical skills. And I started working for a small startup company in Cambridge, doing stuff with audio and mobile phones. And a couple of years into that, I was kind of losing faith in the company. And I think that probably freed up a bit of emotional and mental energy to consider other things. The iPhone was just getting popular. And I was doing this thing at work called ear training where you would learn to develop the critical listening skills needed to, for example, tell whether an MP3 is different to a CD and what are the differences in terms of what you hear. 
I realized that actually related to music too. And for the first time in my life, despite years of instrument lessons, I discovered that actually you can learn to play by ear and you can learn to improvise and spontaneously know the right notes to play. These were things I always thought was a talent or a gift. And if you weren't born with it, well, you were out of luck. So I realized there was this thing called ear training that could teach me to do that. And I got really excited about it. And being a geeky kid, I picked up my iPhone and I made a little app to help me learn this stuff. Around the same time, I fortuitously read The 4-Hour Workweek. And while I think you can debate the pros and cons of that name and the contents of that book, one thing it really did for me was show that, well, anyone can create a business. In this day and age, you know, you don't need an MBA. You don't need a background in business. You don't need a family history of entrepreneurship. You can just kind of decide to sell something online and do it. It sounds like in some ways the four-hour work week deflated the talent myth for entrepreneurship in the same way that the ear training did for improvisation. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like what it did was demystify the whole thing and show that anyone can do it. This CD and MP3 is fascinating to me. What's the difference? Ideally, nothing. And if you have a high-quality MP3, realistically, the answer is nothing. But Early on in the days of MP3, when we were trying to get file sizes really small, we basically crushed a lot of what is actually there in the audio of a CD. You are throwing some information away when you encode to MP3. Long story short, if you have a poor quality MP3, the sound isn't going to be as crisp. So where it gets interesting is if you're in that mid-range where the MP3 is reasonably good but not perfect, you can start to hear these things, particularly if you do an A-B comparison between the original and the MP3 encoded version. And so my work, for example, where I was doing this kind of critical listening, it would involve me sitting there for maybe 20 minutes comparing two different sound clips of a cymbal hit, like the crash of a cymbal, and listening in minute detail for whether the reverberation changed slightly in this one. You know, was there a little bit of a wobble there? And you can drive yourself insane very quickly. But through doing the ear training, you can actually teach yourself to be very methodical about it and to be much more aware and conscious of what's going on in the sound. And that to me was really exciting because actually once you start to do this stuff, music comes alive to you in a new way. You know, you can listen to a song you've heard a hundred times before and there's just so much rich detail that you were oblivious to before you trained your ears. And that's what started to get me really excited about this, that it was helping me enjoy something I loved in much greater depth. Let's keep the comparison going then. When you started the business, you had an idea for a product, but what were the equivalent of like those symbol hits over the first few years of running the business? Like what was the methodology that you needed to learn? What didn't you know about selling things to people? I think what I didn't know was selling things to people. <laughs> I knew how to make things and I knew enough about this ear training thing to make products to teach people it. What I didn't know was basically everything else about turning it into a business. I had a bit of luck early on in that I put my iPhone app out on the App Store. I did a free version. I saw that some people were interested, so that was great. And then I did a paid version. And I think looking back, I actually hired a copywriter. I had some good sense. And I hired a professional copywriter to write the app description. But I had some good luck in that Apple picked it up to be new and noteworthy. So it was on the front page of the App Store alongside the Doom app, which was really exciting to me. So that quickly brought in a chunk of revenue that I hadn't expected. And that was what kind of made me think there might be something here. But then the year or two that followed, it took me a long time to, I think, accept that sales and marketing are as important as product development. I very much suffered from that delusion that if you build it, they will come. And so what I spent my first year or two doing was making things. You know, I made another app. I made another app after that. And then I made a website and I hoped people would come along to it. 
And I'd say, you know, it wasn't until 18 months in that I started to realize this was a problem because the follow-up apps hadn't done as well as the first one. It probably took me another six months or a year after that to really start digging into what my customers, my audience wanted and how I could better serve them. What was the time frame on transition from, oh shit, I'm an entrepreneur to I'm confident that I can do this for the rest of my life? It was a really slow one. Looking back, I'm grateful that I was able to take it gradually the way I did. Because like I said, I wasn't a natural born business person. I wasn't someone who would see the revenue come in from the first iOS app and be like, oh, well, let's dedicate my life to this. We're up and running. So for me, I think I had it as a hobby project for six months or so. And then I negotiated with work to start going part time. So I think over the course of the year after that, So 18 months after launching the first product, I left my day job entirely, but it was a slow transition to that point. It's funny you asked when I felt like this could really be a thing, and it probably took me at least another year after that, if not two, before I did. (laughs) You mentioned that blog post I wrote, and at that stage, I was still very much questioning it. This is 2012. Yeah, 2012, maybe 2013, around that time, because I launched the first app mid-2009, probably came out of my day job by the end of 2011. And 2012, 2013, I was kind of meandering along. You know, I was paying the bills and making ends meet, but I was living in London where it's not that easy to pay the bills and make ends meet. It's not the cheapest city in the world to live in. And so that put a lot of pressure on me, even just paying myself a salary, you know, every month because I was paying a lot of freelancers. I was trying to reinvest and develop new products and push things forwards. And when you're at that size, it's very much one or the other. You know, you can put the money back into the business or you can pay yourself a little more this month. I hesitate to contribute, but since we're talking about meeting other entrepreneurs and being a part of a community, does your story strike you as unique in that sense? Because what I'm hearing is pretty normal in the sense of lots and lots of years of uncertainty and low cash flow. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that's the objective view I can take on it now. But, you know, you and I are part of a fairly privileged bunch in the sense that people who are listening to your podcast have a certain view of entrepreneurship. And I consider myself fortunate to now have that view because going back a few years to the period we're talking about, I really didn't. You know, I'd grown up with that kind of Silicon Valley idea of what starting a business meant or what a startup was. I had this vision of, you know, young techie guys in Silicon Valley. They made something clever, got a lot of money invested, and then ran really fast with it and became millionaires. And I guess I'd always painted myself into that picture when I imagined it as one of the techie guys who would make something clever and then eventually be a millionaire by some stroke of luck. I had no further appreciation of the business side than that. And I think the tricky thing for me anyway was it was easy for me to meander along for a few years without really dispelling that myth. And particularly in London, where there is a strong entrepreneurial scene, the trouble is it's very much following that Silicon Valley model. So if you go along to Google campus and the Tech Hub events, they call it Silicon Roundabout over near Old Street here in London. It's kind of the tech startup hub. And I kind of look at that and I go along to the events and I'd feel like, well, I'm in the right place. You know, my business must fit in here. This must be what starting a business is all about. But I talked to the people there and they were having completely different experiences than I was. In what way? Well, as you say, someone at my stage of my kind of business would expect to be going through or should expect to be going through that self-doubt, low revenue, struggling a little, hustling to make it work. But I'd look around and what I saw was kind of techie guys who had a side project while getting nicely paid at their job or 
business-minded people, probably not with so many tech skills, who were running around town trying to network with angels and venture capital companies to get their idea off the ground. And as far as I could see, those were both, you know, valid and correct. And I couldn't quite figure out why I didn't fit into either category because I'd made a thing, but I wanted it to be a business too. But on the flip side, I wasn't just running around with an idea, hoping someone would give me the chance to pursue it. I never really liked that model. And I knew I had something and it was kind of working. And so I'd look around and feel like, well, I'm in the right place, but I'm having totally different experiences to these people. So either I'm crazy for trying to make a business with this because all those guys have have a hobby project, but they're not trying to turn it into a business. Or I'm crazy for not running after VC and angel money and thinking I can bootstrap this because that seems to be what everyone else is doing. How did they treat your story when you shared it with them? I think respectfully, which probably gave me some encouragement. Number one, they were excited to hear I was an iOS developer because that was still fairly new and making apps was all the rage. And number two, they were generally surprised and impressed that I was making some money with it and I'd managed to make it a job for myself rather than just a hobby project. But again, to be honest, that kind of exacerbated the problem because I talked to these people, their eyes would light up, they'd be so excited about apps and how impressed I was making money. And I'd be excited with them and enjoy the event. And then I'd go home and I'd be like, well, you know, I'm still struggling to pay the bills. Am I really doing the right thing here? You talk a lot about how you're a natural introvert. You're not a big participator and stuff. But it sounds like you are. It sounds like you're trying to connect with people. You're going out to these events. I use the word introvert in the sense that participating in group activities generally is very draining for me. So it's not that I don't like people and I don't like talking to people. I love talking to people. But I love talking to people one-on-one for the most part. And those group social events, particularly kind of networking events and where you're starting a lot of conversations and meeting a lot of different people and the subject keeps changing, I'm fine in the moment. And I suppose I can perform well at them. Like I can present myself and my company well when needed. But I come away and I'm exhausted. And so that always makes me think twice about going in the first place. So that's what I mean by introvert. It's not that I don't like networking with people and meeting new people. It's just that it's really tiring for me. And so it's not my preferred way of communicating and meeting people. One of the themes of this show, I guess, is finding your people that sometimes they're hidden behind shrouds of different sorts. You know, I can think of all these things that I should have done so much earlier in my life, but I had a prejudice about it for whatever reason. And one of the things that you wrote is that you had a resistance to the term lifestyle business. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I definitely had a resistance to the term lifestyle business. I think it was very tied up in this misconception of what entrepreneurship and startups meant and my self-doubt that I was cut out for it because to me, the term lifestyle business means you have a business that just about covers your costs or rather that's what it meant to me at the time. And so I would hear that phrase, it would hit a nerve in me that said, you're only ever going to make hobby money with this, basically. And I had very much had a mindset that, well, if I'm going to quit my successful job and quit that career path, I'm taking a risk, but I'm taking it because I believe there's a really substantial payoff in terms of what I can create and how I can help musicians and what I can achieve with my life. And so when you introduced the phrase lifestyle business, that it was kind of the voice in my head went, well, is that all you're aiming for? Like, is that all you're going to manage with this? And so the Lifestyle Business Podcast, as it was then, I avoided it for a long time for that very reason. You know, that to me was, well, that must be where all the people hang out who don't really want to achieve that much. (laughs) 
And of course, you know, if you compare them with people who just do an office job nine to five and never do anything of their own, they're achieving a great deal, even by my definition of lifestyle business. But it took me quite a long time to realize that the way you and Ian were using that phrase and the way it's more generally used isn't about limiting the size of the business. It's not about having a certain tier of ambition. It's just about enabling a lifestyle. It's about what you can accomplish with your business. And so I think it took listening to the show for me to make that mental shift and realize, well, this wasn't a negative phrase about how unable you were to achieve with your business. It was quite the opposite. What was the happy accident that made you endure the indignity of listening to a podcast with an island and a palm tree on the front of it? (laughs) What was the accident there? I wish I could remember what made me listen for the first time. I think the most likely is that I ran out of other business podcasts to listen to. By the way, this would never happen nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Three years ago, there were certainly fewer to choose from, but there were, you know, you guys had competition, but you were making a name for yourselves. You know, I kept coming across the podcast and I kept having that nerve hit by the phrase lifestyle business. And so I don't know if it was literally I just decided to give it a try one day or you had an episode where the topic resonated with me. But either way, I gave it a listen. And I think from the outset, your intro says even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey. And immediately I was like, well, (laughs) well, yes, I am. (laughs) Help me. One of the things you were writing about is the importance of finding people like minds. Can you talk me through some of the concrete ways that you feel it's helped you? Because I think people have a lot of negative attitudes about networking. So why isn't this all those things that people say when they say the word networking? Well, I don't know if it's fair to just assume that networking is a negative thing, but I feel like people use it that way a lot. I think networking as a verb can be negative. You know, it conveys an idea of establishing relationships purely for the sake of what they can get you. And I think that's what turns people off about networking. They don't have a problem with going along to meetups. They don't have a problem with meeting new people. They have a problem with the idea that you are going along to meetups and meeting new people so that blah, blah, blah. I think the positive kind of networking is exposing yourself to new ideas, new people, and putting yourself out there so that you can make connections that benefit everyone involved. So I want to jump in right here because there's a transition point in the conversation. Here's where Christopher is going to warp us back to a time when he was listening to this podcast so long ago. At the time, it was called the Lifestyle Business Podcast. Of course, now it's the TMBA. And he's going to talk about when he joined the Dynamite Circle, which often on this show we call the DC. Aside from saying I was at this DC event or that DC event, I don't really like to go into too many details about the DC on the show. And that's for a variety of reasons, but I think mostly I just don't like to be a sales guy for it. And I think that, you know, through a system of referrals and creating value for our members, like the right people tend to find their way there. And we're really looking for the right people. That's part of it. But one morning I wake up and I get pinged in my inbox that someone wrote a nice blog post about what you guys are doing. It was called How the Dynamite Circle Has Helped Me in Business and Life. So for the rest of the talk, we're going to talk a little bit about how Christopher feels that DC has given him what he wasn't able to find through other groups of entrepreneurs. And so I had literally spent a couple of years going to events in London and meeting very few entrepreneurs of the type I was and with businesses like mine. But when I started from the DC and then worked backwards to location, I had kind of pre-filtered for the kind of people I was looking for. 
And it was easy to get half a dozen along to a junto and have a great conversation about things that interested me. And it was the same place and it was the same topic, entrepreneurship. But because I started from that kind of pre-filtered community that is the DC, I knew I'd be having high quality conversations with interesting and capable people. And now you said the word junto, and it's worth clarifying that that's, well, maybe you should describe it <laughs> if you can. Sure. So I think the value of the DC has a few components to it. And one of the biggest for sure is the chance to meet DCers in person. And obviously there's a big event every year in Bangkok. And now you guys are doing one in Europe too. But there are also monthly events every third Thursday of the month is Junto Day. And so whatever city you're in, you can start one or you can go along to one if someone else is organizing one. And it's just an informal meetup for DCers with no clear agenda and no purpose as it were. You know, it's not a masterminding session. There aren't presentations. It's literally just show up and chat with other DCers, which to me, as an introvert, like we talked about, on the face of it wouldn't appeal. <laughs> you know, come along and chat to people. That sounds like a waste of time. But actually, because we pre-filtered to DCers, when I say chat to people, what I mean is have really fascinating conversations about the stuff that you actually care about in your business day to day. And so it doesn't matter whether I've met the people at Agento before or not. I have probably five times better, more interesting conversation with a random DC at Agento than I do with a random person anywhere else. There's so many people that listen to this show, entrepreneurs of all different stripes. What are those conversations like? Like, what do you talk about when you randomly meet up? I guess if you can contrast it with the types of conversations that happened at the startup meetups. You know, when you meet a new person for the first time and there's some kind of business context, the initial questions are almost inevitably, what do you do? And just trying to find out a bit about them and their business and their role in the business. But I think when you do that at a random cocktail party, there's a 50-50 chance the person hates their job and the conversation quickly goes south. When you do it at like a Silicon Roundabout meetup event, your odds are a bit better because unless they're having a particularly bad day, the chances are the entrepreneur is going to be excited to tell you about their idea. And sadly, a lot of the time it's an elevator pitch and they haven't actually started the thing yet. And so you kind of enjoy chatting through the potential of it with them but they don't really have anything to back that up with. You know, all they can tell you is the idea and the people they're pursuing to try and get funding for it. Contrary-wise, if you go along to a Junto, everyone has a business. They're up and running. They can tell you the idea and how they present that to the market and what their market is and how they're currently pursuing that and how it's going. And that just means you have vastly more in common. You have vastly more to talk about. They have expertise that is maybe overlapping with yours or complementary to yours. So I don't know, I find those conversations just have so much more energy to them and go quickly into such detail that's useful and interesting to both sides. That probably, you know, 70% of the conversations I have with a random DC are go along those lines and I thoroughly enjoy them. And that's compared with maybe 5% in the general population and 20% at a networking event. I was thinking of this idea of like mutual fascination with a topic. So I think a lot of the ways like a lot of business meetups are organized is like you're all there to get something. And so everybody's trying to figure out what it is we're all going to get. Whereas my experience with the Gentos has been, these are people that are just all generally interested. And so someone is going to inevitably nerd out on whatever it is that they discovered that week. Yeah, and I think it touches on the spirit of the DC, which is one of so much generosity and abundance. 
compared with other business environments. And so like you say, if you go along to some networking events, it'll be a financing matchmaking thing. And, you know, half the people are investors and the other half have businesses and everyone's trying to kind of feel each other out and see if there's a deal to be made. And it's really tedious. But if you go along to a Junto, there's none of that agenda really going on. You know, I've done business with DCAs. I've hired several and had great results, but that's never the reason I'm talking to a DCA, you know, it's a happy accident when it happens. And like you say, it's a fascination thing because everyone is so caught up in their business and they love what they're doing um you know at least in the big picture if not the slog they went through yesterday they have a passion for what they are going to share with you and you have a passion for hearing about it and it just makes for a very energetic conversation yeah it's a very different type of conversation than what can i get from this networking you mentioned all these like really specific things that had happened in your business since you joined like the 40x email list growth. Your web traffic has gone up by a 5x factor. You've gotten a coach, which is an interesting thing. And it's probably fair to say that most of those things might have happened anyway, right? I mean, it seems like you were on the right path. So I'm trying to figure out... No, I totally disagree. <laughs> okay, so then for the people that do get the most value out of these sorts of groups, how do they do it? Okay, so the first thing is it's a quantitative difference. It's was I in the DC versus not? And that was a major change to my business. So the reason I wouldn't agree that I was on the right path and it would all have happened anyway is that there was a substantial qualitative difference in my life before and after joining. I had access to people and information and a culture and a support system that I simply didn't have before. And so that was a qualitative difference that I can't look back and say, well, I would have gone this route anyway. It was that significant. There's also a quantitative difference in the sense that it accelerated some things I was doing and it let me move faster with how I was growing my business. Concrete example, one of the results I was sharing from my impact the DC has had on me was about web traffic. So my main source of customers is organic search traffic to my main website. And that's grown substantially while I've been a member of the DC. And from the outside, maybe you look at that and you look at the trend of my Google Analytics and you say, well, it was growing anyway. It just grew a bit faster and, you know, it was all inevitable. But for me, from the inside, I know that, well, actually, I posted in the DC asking for help with this particular aspect of SEO, um, talking about on-site optimization and making sure your website's structured correctly to get the most out of the content you're putting out there. And I think, you know, within three hours, I had a screencast from Chris Dietrich where he sat down for 10 minutes and just kind of pulled apart my homepage and told me 17 different things that were wrong with it all of which I could immediately go off and fix. And he didn't do that because he's an SEO consultant and he was trying to get a client. He did that because he's a DCer and he saw a DCer in need and he could help. So he did. And that kind of blew me away because I think that was fairly early on for me and I hadn't really experienced that kind of generosity from DCers before. It's not an outlier. Like that's the kind of thing that happens in the DC. And then there were several other posts by other experts helping me in other ways from the concrete business stuff like technicalities of SEO to broader stuff like the philosophy of email marketing and how you approach that to kind of personal stuff like mindset and relaxing versus hustling and even like fitness stuff, discovering new approaches to diet and fitness. 
Your discussion titles are like a crash course in DC culture. Traveling with kids, share your tips and <laughs> tricks. Launching a B2C product over the holidays, yay or nay. Do you add a prefix to your autoresponder subject lines? It's like if you handed this stuff to a civilian, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I gave the examples because I know if you had handed that list to me three or four years ago, my eyes would have lit up. And if you had said to me, there's one person at this networking event who knows about all this stuff, I would have been desperately running around the room trying to find them. (laughs) And so I think I just consider myself very fortunate now that I can not just find one person, but I can be part of a community where that's just normal. Wow. Well, thanks for writing the post. Really nice. Awesome. Thank you. It's so hard for me to do a podcast about the DC too. Well, you should. Like, I think I touched on it in that post. You guys, I wouldn't say you do yourselves a disservice, but I think you are, you know, naturally so modest and, you know, you joke about bragging, but you don't actually do it that much. I don't know if it's a modesty thing. It's more like a taste thing. Like, it feels... I get that and I respect it. At the same time, I think there are so many people who are in the shoes that I was a few years ago. And that's what made me write this post for my blog is just in the, you know, far-fetched hope that one person might find it and join the DC and be saved from that kind of loneliness that I was going through back then. I think you guys could afford to be a little more pushy with it on the podcast, not for yourselves and not from self-interest, but from the opportunity to help more people who are listening to the podcast but haven't yet made the connection in their mind, oh, there's a community. If I join that, it might help with a lot of this stuff I'm struggling with. Hey, big thanks to Christopher for coming on the show and for writing that blog post. It was awesome to wake up and see that. We're going to post the links to everything mentioned on the show at tropicalmba.com slash DC community. Speaking of the DC community, I've brought on Boss Man here at the end of the episode just to say hi. Here I am. Here you are. (laughs) What's the next line? Rocky like a hurricane. Yeah, that's right. That's That's nice. Where's your intro music? Can we play it now? You know, pretty much before we record the podcast, we just joke about your cat for an hour. That's what gets me into the entrepreneurial mood. Yeah, I feel like that's my contribution to this show sometimes is to pump up the mood. So we'll get on the call and tell some jokes and talk about cats and whatever else helps us get inspired. When I think back to this conversation that Christopher and I had, I just remember like how much of a breakthrough it was to meet your people, whoever they are. You know, like it's one thing to read a book or a blog post or listen to some audio even, but it's a whole nother to create connections with those people. So I just think with the internet, it is infinitely easier to find your people. But not really, because here's the thing, like you can find them, but connecting with them is as hard as it ever was, you know, because it might mean that you can't have your job anymore or you can't live where you're living or that you're going to need to invest a lot of money to fly elsewhere. I just moved to a new place six months ago. And, you know, it takes time to make friends. It takes time to earn people's trust. It does. But the good part about not having a job is that you got all kinds of time. (laughs) (laughs) And so you could really dedicate a lot to it. And I'm serious about that. I mean, I think about the couple of relationships that 
I've started to make here in Austin, Texas, because I'm new to this town. I didn't know a whole bunch of people with the exception of the DCers that were here. But I find most of these people don't have jobs. <laughs> and they're in a similar situation where it's like, hey, what are you doing Tuesday at 10? Because I don't have a job and you don't have a job. Let's get a breakfast and let's talk about stuff. I also just want to stress, you know, when I was thinking about Christopher's story, one of the things that really resonates with me. And maybe this isn't true for everybody. And maybe those people aren't interested in finding their people. But for me, like that's when change really starts. When you really start to see results is when you can build a community around yourself. And then it's not only an issue of accountability, it's an issue of identity. And it's an issue of not just like knowing things, but like knowing experiences. We've talked about on the show, like the difference between know how and know that. I think like being around other people and having to maintain relationships with them is a sort of know-how. There are things that are subtle about being an entrepreneur, about not having a boss, about living an unconventional lifestyle, I think we can call it that, that can't just be captured in a listicle or a, even a podcast, right? You can't just capture that stuff. You got to be around the people to understand what's going on. It's true. And I think finding your people, obviously, you know, can be finding your friends and then finding people that you work with. But the process is kind of the same, which in my experience is all kind of stem from one thing, which is being generous, extending people opportunities and extending people your time and your gifts and whatever you might have to offer someone. And I find that that's a great way to meet people and form meaningful relationships. And by the way, you don't have to just give to people and then be waiting on the other end for the payback. <laughs> no, you just give, man. You just give because that's what you want to do. And that's what Christopher does in the DC. And I think that that's why he's gotten a lot out of it. Look, let's be honest. There's a lot of people that have joined the DC and say, uh, that sucks. It wasn't for me. That's just going to be the case. You got to find what it's going to be meaningful to you, the group of people that's going to resonate with you. That's the message of today's show. Thanks to Christopher for stopping by, giving us a chat and for writing that wonderful blog post. You can find the links to everything we talked about today at tropicalmba.com slash DC community. I feel like this might be like an episode of Full House where there's a lesson at the end. Yes. You know, it's like there's always <laughs> got to be a lesson at the end. You can't just end it with somebody getting their feelings hurt and it not getting fixed, you know? <laughs> got to fix it. See you next week, Dan. We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.